Welcome to Beef and Forage Roundup with host Chantal McRae. This podcast is a production of Manitoba Beef and Forage Initiatives, created to share information with farmers, producers, and agriculture enthusiasts to showcase the important work that is happening at MBFI. Our podcasts drop on the first and third Wednesday each month. We will be sharing information through interviews with General Manager Mary Jane Orr, project leads for various projects, MBFI team members, speakers from our extension events, industry leaders, and industry suppliers. This podcast will dig deep into on-farm research and field testing practices related to beef cattle and forage production and efficiency and sustainability of practice in the agricultural industry in Manitoba. We will be sharing information on upcoming training and workshops, field and farm demonstration tours, education materials and events at MBFI, as well as producer profiles from around the province, and information on their own trials, challenges, innovation, and results. We encourage you to browse our social media accounts and website for links to more information on projects, upcoming events, and important deadlines. Information on our social accounts and website can be found following the show and in the show notes. As always, we encourage you to email us if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show at information at mbfi.ca. Ron grew up in Kelvington, Saskatchewan. During his teen years, Ron rode one provincial community pasture and four PFRA pastures while he was going to high school and university. A lot of weekends, he competed in horse sports at the small fairs and rodeos. In 1978, Ron graduated from the University of Saskatchewan in Saskatoon with a degree in agriculture, majoring in animal science and minoring in economics. In May of 1978, Ron started with PFRA construction out of Regina. In August of 1978, Ron came to Dauphin as a land manager, which was called the pasture supervisor back then, and held this position for 25 years, supervising the 12 pastures in the north half of Manitoba. In March of 2004, Ron took a position called Technology Transfer Coordinator and was in this position until he retired in March of 2012. One of the goals of the position was to transfer activities that had worked and some that had not worked to producers. Community pastures were involved with activities or applied research to not only help with the operations, but also to benefit the agricultural community. Today, Ron and his wife Yvonne have a low management herd on the pasture year-round using bale grazing to accomplish this. Their operation consists of a small cow yearling operation in which they are content to have 30 cows. Calving is in May-June. Calves are kept over and grazed at their daughter Allison's place the following year. The yearlings are sold at the end of September from 13 to 15 months of age. Influenced by Jim Garish's management intensive grazing and a 2006 holistic course with Don and Bev Campbell, the pasture for the cows has 23 permanent rectangular paddocks and they are usually moved twice a day in each paddock with temporary fencing. Ron strives to produce a healthy landscape, make a few dollars, and have fun doing it. Welcome to the podcast today, Ron. Well, thank you. You're welcome. To start off, can you share a little bit about your history and background in agriculture? I grew up at Kelvington, Saskatchewan, uh, raised on a PFRA community pasture. While I was going to high school and, and university, I rode on first one provincial community pasture and then four PFRA pastures. In 1978, I got a degree from the University of Saskatchewan in, with agricultural degree. And in May of the same year, I started work for PFRA Construction out of Regina. 
which was checking contractors building and breaking seating and and then i spent six weeks on the road with an aerial spray crew with them in august of 1978 i come to Dauphin. The pastor supervisor had, was on a two-year leave of absence, so I filled in for him, and then it went for competition two years later, and I was successful. And for the next 25 years, I did that, looking after the north half of Manitoba, which is 12 pastures. For the last seven years of my career, I took a different position, technology transfer manager. It was a lot of fun, and I covered a lot of ground with that one. Anyways, I'll give you just a brief synopsis. I got married in 1978 to Yvonne Mearson, and we have three kids, Allison, Ryan, and Andrew, and they're horse crazy just like me. And now we have eight grandchildren. Anyways, we bought our first cow, I think, in 1980 or 81, I don't know which, and we got $457 for the first cow, I remember that much. We kind of put together a small herd, but we didn't have any land. So we rented pastures and yard sites. And then in 1989, we bought a quarter, five miles north of Dauphin. 1990, we put a house in, and we've been here ever since. And that's kind of a brief history, I guess. Perfect, thank you. So can you tell me a little bit about where you're located and what your operation and cattle herd look like today? Well, we're a very small cow yearling operation. I think in 2021, we only had 36 cows. And with the drought, we decided to cull the older cows. So this winter, we all we have is 25 cows, four yearlings, and then we have the 2022 calves. Very small. We've kind of calved at all times of the year, but in uh, from 1990 to 2013, we fall calved. What we would do is sell the calves off the cows at seven to 10 months of age in August. Then in 2013, I had a bull wreck. About half the cows got bred. So anyways, we decided to switch to May-June calves. And that was a real blessing in disguise, to tell the truth. But it just has worked really good in May-June for us. And I have no desire to change, especially to go back to any cold weather calves. What are some things you think about in regards to range management when you're planning your grazing for the year? I think the biggest thing is changing up my rotation. I'll go back through my records to see where I went the last two or three years on the rotation and make sure I start in a different spot. And usually we only graze about one and a half times. So usually we have stuff that's got quite a bit of stockpile on that. And quite often that'll be where we do start our grazing. And then the next thing I do is I, I do a plan. And normally I try and base it on 85 days of recovery period before we get back to regraze any areas. And basically, I think for our farm anyways, a 65 to 90 day recovery period would work good to keep the forage palatable for the cows and also to provide a healthy grass. That's what I believe anyways at this time. And I know that that recovery period will very much depending where you are and what your forage is like. And how often or how many days would your cows be on the same patch for before you move them? Well, 
I'll explain a little later on, but we strip grates that they're usually only on for half a day. They're on paddocks for maybe up to four or five at a max, but we strip graze within it. So hopefully they don't re-graze anything that's uh, behind them. And if I get on a bigger paddock, what I'll do is I'll, I'll put a fence behind them too, so they can't go back. And I don't do that very often, but if I start to see them going back, well, I, you know, I don't want them to regraze anyway. What do you use for water systems? Well, this is, I wouldn't really recommend this. We haul water. I have a stock water at the yard and I have a dugout that we do use. But the dugout basically just uses one paddock. So unless I'm in a bind and then I can put temporary fence over to the dugout, especially with the price of fuel, I, it's, I don't think the economics are there anymore. We have a tank loading facility right kitty corner to it. So it, it doesn't take me long to fill a tank and, and it's close. But Yvonne has uh, said, how long are you going to do this? I would have put a pipeline. I should have put it in 10 years ago or better. But uh, she said, how long are you going to keep doing this? <laughs> probably, probably for a while, yeah. Then we put it that way. If you're nice and close to it, then it's as long as it's not taking you a whole bunch of time. But definitely with the fuel cost this year and last year, it'll be something to think about. Oh, for sure. Do you have any key points or suggestions that you keep in mind when you're turning your cattle out? Well, I'll tell you what I do, but I, I like we bale graze. So the cows are out uh, all year round. And what happens as soon as the snow starts to go, uh, the cows are grazing and picking. And I'll open up areas where there's excess grass or stockpiled grass, but they can still go back to the bale graze and bale graze if they want. Then as soon as we start getting some growth, and uh, Don Campbell from Meadow Lake said as a guide, this is when the first popper leaves are coming out, the grass is starting to grow. We start to move the cows quickly, and that's when our grazing plan really starts. But what we do in those first fields is just go through. They might only be on it a half a day. Like we just nip it or try to just barely touch it. And what we've kind of found with this is that uh, those fields a lot of times are the most productive for the season and steve canyon said that he feels that just a slight nip on the grass stimulates it and the reason why i'm kind of going here a bit on this is because it um i realized that if you were on these for any length of time you should wait to the third or the fourth grass the leaf before you, you did start but I, I really believe that that stockpiled grass, and I'll get into that a little later on, helps a little bit too with that, uh, not hurting the new growth so much. So the other thing that I'd like to maybe mention at this time is that I really believe that uh, leaving a paddock till August really can as a way of rejuvenating it. And uh, if, we, if we're going by a paddock and it doesn't look so good, or whatever, I might skip it. No, I won't graze it till the second pass. And Dwayne McCartney, I heard him say this years ago, and this was up at, he was a research scientist at uh, Pathful by Melford. He said by uh, leaving it to August, he changed the, some of the species from the short growing, like Kentucky bluegrass, to maybe smooth broom. But anyways, it's just a, a way of rejuvenating the pasture, and I, and I really believe in it. When you are doing your moves first thing in the spring, you'll have young calves or be calving. 
kind of at that time. Do you have any pointers or suggestions for people who are maybe looking to try this as far as how to successfully move those young babies? Or are you just doing really short moves where it's maybe not as much of a problem? Well, we're lucky it is short moves. And I know people have to move them across the road and all that kind of stuff. That would be really tough. I usually just leave the gates open behind them. Like in the cabin period, the cow can go back and forth. What happens is, of course, we just use a single wire all the way, and uh, calves are, they disappear. Like uh, they're in the next paddock. Sometimes they're even two or three over, but I really got, so I don't worry about it. Those calves will, and the cows, they'll find each other. I think one time it was four days before I knew a calf had sucked. I'd seen it suck and had it first suck. I never seen it again. I went out there with my horse up and down strips looking for it. And of course, I never found it. And then all of a sudden, it shows up. Yeah, it does, uh, especially in the tall grass. You just don't see them. But I think leaving gates open so they can go back and forth, you know, you, you kind of got to balance. When you're putting fresh grass in front of them every day, they're, they're usually the cows are not interested in going back to regraze something anyways. Until we get through that calving period, I'm not too worried about shutting the gates behind them anyway. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense because they seem to tuck those babies away in spots where, like you said, oh. you won't see them for a couple yes. of days other than you know that the cow's been sucked and then they just kind of reappear. So, Yeah, it's scary though. Yeah. Tell me about your grazing rotations, which you've kind of talked about a little bit, and how you manage your grazing. I'll tell you how we normally do it, and then I'll tell you what we did this year because it was a, just different. Anyways, uh, we have 23 paddocks that we graze the cows on, and they're they're mostly rectangular, and they're about four and a half to five acres. And then we have three bigger ones that are nine to 11 acres. And, and then we strip graze within them, moving them twice a day. My posts are usually roughly all the same distance. so. That's what I use for my guide. That's how I, uh, in the spring, I might go two to four posts, a strip. And we get lots of growth later on, maybe only half a post. But anyway, that's just a, an aside. If I feel I've ate too much grass, I just give them a little bigger strip the next time. It's, it's a balancing. You just got to balance it. This year, everything went out the window because it was uh, water everywhere. And, we started our grazing plan on May 18th and everything was just saturated, but the grass was coming good. We gave them the whole paddock because they were just pugging it out. If you, you couldn't concentrate them and they weren't on these paddock very long. And like I say, they're four and a half to five acres and they might be there half a day at the start. Anyways, we made the circle. We went through the first 20 paddocks in 33 days and the average about a day and a half on them and when we got back there i was looking and the first paddock actually was starting to head out or, or the grass was growing over with grace and we'd had three paddocks in 21 the bigger ones that we'd heavily grazed but we only grazed the 20 paddocks once and there was a fair bit of growth from august you know or some growth we had some rains in august so they'd come back but we never grazed it so anyways, I rationalized what I did here anyways, but I, I decided to do the second pass again, even though my recovery period was only 33 days. And, and this was June 21st and uh, it was still really wet. So we were still moving really fast. 
And anyways, we made the pass around and we averaged about 3.2 days per paddock from there. So by the time we got back to the three big paddocks, it was August 24th. So like I say, just totally radical different this year. And the grass in those three big paddocks was probably uh, was three feet high. So we stripped grazed in there. And by the time we got done, the cows weren't real happy because it was getting pretty unpalatable. We finished there on October 15th. Then from there, we went back to the 20 paddocks again. And we only actually got through four of them before the got too cold and the snow got too deep. But uh, the one thing I will add is it was so lush, I couldn't get the cows interested in the bale grazing. They were just, just kept picking, picking. And if I would give them another strip, they would have just kept grazing. They would, even through the snow, it was kind of interesting. They'd go to a clump of grass and then they would graze out from there. But you don't see that very often, quite often. You know, the grass is getting fairly unpalatable in November. Just a different year, but I won't do it the same. I was a little leery about mentioning that, but that's what nature, it's things change. Like when we say a 65 to a 90 day recovery period, well, this year it was like we had done irrigation, like it was, mm -hmm. it was just unreal. So just a different year, but we may not see that again for years. Yeah, there was so much moisture. And I think you guys, like I'm down by Brandon, I think you guys were maybe even wetter than what we were. Yeah, I'm not, but it was wet. I know that. <laughs> Often when I'm talking to people about using rotational grazing strategies, most people say it varies a lot depending on like the rain and the temperature and the year and where you left off last year and where you're going to start this year. And it just oh, has to be flexible. Sure. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And it's, and it's like anything, it's, it's an art, I gather. How do you approach your extended grazing and winter feeding? Well, normally we graze as long as we can, you know, once it hits minus 20 or the snow gets too deep. But the other thing is we haven't bailed grazed. I think the latest I've went on it is December 13th. And if the cows aren't ready for bale grazing by then, I am because I'm tired of setting up temporary posts. So, uh, you know, I'm ready to put them on it. The other thing is uh, I'm not too concerned about it because what I don't graze in the spring is carryover and you can graze it when the snow starts to go. And if I grazed, and to tell the truth, if we kept grazing uh, through December and January, I wouldn't have any stockpile. Like it would be all gone. I just don't have enough land or enough growth to, to do it. So. Anyways, and I like good growth on those first paddocks when I go on to them. Well, I guess what I kind of wanted to maybe stress too a little bit was that the, the bale grazing is, is probably one of, the, one of the best tools to improve the pastures. And even though we only bale graze just a small portion of it every year, and with us, it's probably five acres, it adds up over time. And I think what happens is in, People say this all the time, but you're importing nutrients. You're bringing them in from your hay field. And in our case, we buy all our feed. So we're bringing it in from somebody else's. So 85% of that nutrients is going through the cow and has fertilizers. And the other thing that I found really interesting about it is I'm seeing new grasses. Well, say orchard grass. I never seeded it, but it must be coming in on the hay, I think. And it's, it's getting fairly prevalent. And the other big advantage to it is it's allowed us to uh, broadcast legumes. And we broadcast legumes just on the mill grazed areas. 
usually the only place I'll get a catch is where there's residual straw or hay, but we've got sizer and, and clovers. We have pretty good luck. In uh, 2020 and 21, I tried Sandpoint and it was a disaster. None of it caught, but whether it was dry or I don't know. I'm not sure if it's because Sandpoint is not suited for me or had the wrong variety or just what the score is, but I like to get more legumes in. We've got alfalfa already and we've got some tree foil. Anyways, I'm not sure what I'll try this spring, but it's just another way of getting a little more productivity in your pasture, I think. When you're doing your bale grazing, how many bales would you give the cattle at a time and how often would you be moving that fence? Well, this year they've got six bales is all. Uh, I used to go, most of our 21 paddocks are 260 feet of wide. So seven or eight bales fits across it pretty good. But with the lower numbers of cows, I don't like to give them that much feed. So right now they're going about three days. They're eating more than normal, but Anyways, that's the way it is. It's, the bales must be a little smaller. I actually didn't weigh them this year, so not a good scene. I usually do have a weight on them, but I don't. I estimated they're 1,200 pounds, but I have a feeling they might be a little bit lighter. Anyways, it varies. Where I, uh, I have a bale graze a lot out in the open fields, so I have to have bales tucked away in places where it's sheltered. I have one area there, it's between two strips of bush, so I'm only going three wide there. And so I, I try and, uh, I'm moving fairly quickly because like I say, there's all the calves in that are with them too. So uh, we usually leave the calves on until March, by the way. And then I like to have them weaned about six weeks before they go to the pastures. That was one thing I didn't mention is that the, all the cows and, and the horses and that stay on the home quarter, but our yearlings all go up to our daughter's quarter. She's got one by the right mountain, and that's where they spend the summers. And then we sell them next fall and when they're about 13 to 15 months old. You were previously a technology transfer coordinator with PFRA, as you mentioned. Can you share a little bit about what that role looked like for you? And what you learned in that position and how this has impacted your current practices? Well, I'm not sure how much it impacted it. Well, everything you do impacts how you think. But I had three main areas that I actually ended up working in eventually. One of them was tree and brush management and control. It was management plans for that. In other words, I was a tree killer. We had 34 parkland pastures and the estimates were we were losing 15,000 acres of grassland to uh, encroachment so it, it's a big thing we tried all different kinds of methods and, and we've been doing it since probably 1935 different kinds of controls and they all got their place but what it boils down or what my thoughts are is that the only economical way of controlling bush in the long run is, is with livestock it's uh, you can use the other methods you know and i have used gyromorn don't get me wrong you know gyromorn some stuff but i try and figure out well if i did it once i'm going to try and bale graze on it or i'm going to use high density stock grazing somehow to control it anyway that's my take on brush control and then i worked a lot with remote watering which we need for the vast grazing system. So 
That was a lot of fun and lots of learning experience. We had everything under the sun. We had solar, wind, diesel generators, lots of storage systems, that kind of My take on all of that is that they're really good, but unless you have backup water sources like sloughs, dugouts, lakes, you, you got to check them every day. And it's so easy to get placid. And I know I do it. I use solar all the time for my own. And it works for two months. And then all of a sudden, something goes here. And, and you get a little placid, you know. You, but you just got to check. The last big area that I worked in was invasive weeds. So I was working on management plans and uh, all this kind of stuff. But I think that my big take on invasive weeds is is just watching our ranges. And as soon as you spot a, a noxious weed, eradicate it. Just get rid of it because you leave it to an infestation stage, you're in trouble. And at home here, we have uh, common tansy and burdock. I might only find half a dozen plants a year, but I just uh, nuke them. And everybody's got different ways of dealing with it. And I don't care if it's pulling it or, or uh, if you're against spraying, you know, that's fine. But you better be monitoring, go back and checking and maybe graze the cows on it, feed them right on top of it, do whatever. But, but I think the problem that most people have is, is just ID in these plants. If you see a strange plant out on your pastures and you don't know what it is, take a picture of it or get somebody to ID it for you. I don't suggest pulling it out because it might be an endangered species, who knows. And it is nice to see. I always want to see new plants that I can't, that I've never seen before. That's that's what I want to see on a range. But but I sure don't want leafy spurge, common tansy, or burdock, or you know some of these other things that are going to cause us problems down the road. The only thing I will add to this whole thing is the same with invasive weeds. Is that I believe in using livestock high density grazing. You can't control it. You can control it, but you're not going to eradicate it. I'll give you an example. Like at Elbow, we had, well, I'm not even sure how many acres, 10,000 acres of leafy spurs. I don't really know. We had 3,000 sheep and goats there. And it just looked like canola fields, like yellow. And you turn them in there, and those sheep and goats, the yellow would just disappear. And they lived mostly on spurs and western snowberry, left the grass for the cows. I'm not saying that you need some of the grass, Otherwise, you won't have cows there. It's taken over by spurs. So, but everything happens so slow we don't see it. You know, like uh, it's like trees. If you go back where I started in 1978, now it's a forest. So you are now a grazing mentor for the Farmers for Climate Solutions Farm Resilience Mentorship Program for Advanced Grazing Systems. Can you tell me what this role means to you and your activities in this position? Well, to tell the truth, when I agreed to do this, it was just to add spice to life. Like uh, I've uh, enjoyed retirement, but I still miss meeting farmers and talking range and cows. So I jumped at it for that reason. But at the same time, I'm a real believer in that healthy grazing or advanced grazing is the way to carbon sequestration and climate change. And I just think it's one of the answers. I know it's not the only answer for it, but one of them. And like I mentioned earlier, I've been a tree killer, but I just finished a book called uh, Hydrate the Earth by, and I can't say her first name, but it's A. 
Fritz Simons, and uh, she uh, spoke at the watershed in Winnipeg. It is a really good book, and basically what she's saying is trees cause rainfall, and they help out with the small water cycle. And what she's driving at is, is filling up her ground aquifers. So it makes you think that, you know, we need both trees and healthy rangeland to have a healthy planet. And that's what it boils down to. And I, I firmly believe in that. I wrote the title of that down. You said it was hydrating the earth. Yeah. Hydrate the earth. Yeah. I'll have to see if I can find it and, and read a copy. What are your goals through being a mentor? I really like the rotational grazing program. And I think if I can get producers interested in doing it, it's just a a win-win for them. It's not only the money, but it's the, you know, to make a healthy rangeland. And that's what I'm hoping for. Now, every farmer is totally different. Like, and what works for me is not going to work for them. So, and I guess my goal is to, if we can come up with advanced grazing systems that fit their lifestyle, their time, and, and make them money. So that's my, hopefully I, hopefully I can help out a little bit in that way. So anyways, that's my goal. So. That's a great goal. You've kind of alluded to this already, but in your opinion, what are the key elements to consider when developing or revising a grazing system? Well, everything revolves around water so it, it's uh, it's what water sources do you have and what water sources can you develop or or you're interested in developing like pipelines or solar all that kind of stuff and i think this has really come home to roost in the last couple of years is that you know in the drought of 20 and 21 is that guys had grass but they had no water so we need some more drought proofing and uh, and that's needed for advanced grazing. So, and what I'm thinking is that, you know, maybe we need deeper reservoirs and bigger, like dugouts, they're just too shallow, or uh, deep wells. But then I, I think about beavers, and I think, you know, maybe we should be using beavers. Let them help us. You know, we're always trying to drain it, but I think we should be thinking about, yeah, that, that big slough might be our safest two years down the road. So, I think water is water management. We have to do work on that, I believe. So I, I think the other thing that comes home and uh, Manitoba is, especially a lot of the Crown Lease, it's got so many different landscapes, lowland, highland, and all these landscapes, they have to be fenced separately. Like to me, one cow or a cow always picks one area over another, whether it's the highland over the lowland or or she'll go in the open fields versus going into the forest. So although I do like a mixed mosaic, I do like a field that's like 30% trees in it. That's great. But when I have a great big open field, I know where they're going to spend their time. They're going to camp out there and they're not going to go into the bush. So that's good. just how much we can separate them. And then the other thing I think is all our lifestyles are all different. Some people work where they got long ways to travel to the pasture. So the amount of time you have to, to do it and how much do you want to spend that? Like I, I move cows daily and I like it. Some people want to do it every day or every four days. And some people don't have any choice. It's, it's got to be a little extended on that. I think 
it's a balancing act. So it's trying to figure out what fits people and what fits me is sure not going to fit even you probably. The other thing is that we should have some flexibility built into these grazing plans and setting up fields and that so we can divide them more down the road or 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 maybe you're going to increase your herd size and you don't need them quite as small you know that kind of thing it's it's the flexibilities when you're moving your cattle a couple of times a day do you use bat latches or anything like that as far as technology or are you going out and moving them physically yourself i just go out and move them like we're on the same border so it's it's not very far to go either so yeah i'd have to have uh, big numbers before it looked at that last can you describe how you approach working with farmers to develop grazing plants well i'm still on a learning curve here and i'm still trying to figure out how to do it better but i guess one of the things is when somebody phones me usually i know nothing about their operation and it's usually a short call, but I try and find out if they've got a map of their ranch or farm or an ortho. And if they don't, then I get the legal land description from them and I get an ortho made up just so I can get a bird's eye view of the operation. Then I, I go and meet with, with the producer and, and spouse and family sometimes. Quite often it's just this producer, but I know what the operation's like. But this has probably been one of the hardest things for me because I, I feel nosy asking questions. And some guys just right off the bat are telling you how they're doing stuff. The next guy, no, don't tell you. And so you gotta, you know, how do you move your cows? How many cows you got? How many fields? Oh, you got a pipeline here? Yeah, and you know, stuff. So it's, it's just finding out that information and, and getting started. I think one of the problems that I've run into concerns about is the online modules are really good but the problem is is i'll get a phone call from a producer and i meet him next week so what i do is i send out a one-page sheet with some points for ideas on how to, to do the, the grazing plan then i send the fence calculator and then i send the, the site for the online modules but most guys, they don't have a chance to look at those online modules before I meet them a week later. So I don't know what the producer knowledge of the grazing principles are or what they think. So I think in the future, I'm going to try and encourage guys to go through these online modules before I meet with them. But anyways, it's, I, I see that as one little drawback and I'm just not sure. So what we do next is we'll just, normally we sit down and draw and propose fence lines and do the application, do the, the grazing plan. Now, some guys are uh, doing a lot of rotational anyways and are really leaning to the advance and they, they have it all thought out already. Like they know where they want fences and what they want. At least that's a, a fair number of the ones that I went to see so far. And there is the odd person, I think that two that did all the paperwork themselves. Um, the rest of them have kind of done it together, but a couple of just they, had, they went and did the application and had everything done up. So it was good. So I'm actually, the way I look at it, I'm a resource. You use me if you need me or not. It doesn't, you know, I'm just there. And like I say, I've felt a little inadequate a couple of times. 
just because I was lacking on information, I think. And this will be your second year, right, coming up? Yeah, but we didn't really get going on it till fall, like this mm-hmm. last fall. So, yes. I would have been on a couple of tours of ranches or farms, but for me, I can accomplish more usually at the kitchen table looking at a good map. It takes a lot of time to cover a ranch. Now, I like, don't get me wrong, I like, I can get an idea uh, what kind of landscape they have and, and, and the, how they graze, to tell the truth, if I went on a tour. But, but I, I think you can accomplish more just with a map in a short order anyway. It's evolving. Probably tell you something different next week. So. <laughs> It'll be a learning process for everybody, but that sounds great. From your experience, what do you see as the challenges to making a change in a grazing system? And how can these challenges be best addressed to improve grazing on the landscape? One of the uh, challenges is just combining herds. A lot of producers, it's, if you put everything all into one herd, it just makes advanced grazing so easy, especially if all their pastures are tied together. But when you start going with, oh, I want two or three, I want to have the black cows over here and the red ones over here, well, then it, it's really tough. I think that would, the first thing is if guys would be interested in combining herds, it would make advanced grazing a lot simpler. The other big problem is back to water again, but because these uh, herds are so large, uh, some of these guys are three to 500 cows and a lot. It's a pretty big water source and expensive. So it's back, it's even having water sources that are big enough to deal with the big herd. And this may not be as big a deal now as it was five years ago, but it's electric fences. It's knowledge of how they work. And it, when something doesn't work, well, guys get dissatisfied and then things go by the wayside. But I always say the most important part of a, uh, an electric fence is a good tester. It's just so you can, you know, where the fault is, there's nothing more frustrating than a piece of barbed wire touching your high tensile somewhere and shorten it out and you can go back and forth. By, but when you have that fault tester, it'll take you right to it. So that to me is an important too. I don't care how pretty a fence is, but it should be highly conductive and and guys using good insulators, that's, you know, that's a must to me. And 12 and a half gauge high tensile wire. There's a lot of inferior electric fence supplies out there. And I don't know, I, I just go to the brand names because I can't, looking at two insulators, I can't tell you that why this one's better than the other, but I don't want a cheap one, put it that way. The other thing I do run into, and I, I find this a little funny sometimes, one wire I'm happy with for interior and exterior fences, but most people aren't. And I had to add two wires at home here along the grid road because the baby cows, the first couple of weeks, they go under the fence. And the grid road was a concern, but otherwise I, I never had a problem. I've grazed for the last 25 years with one wire with grain all the way around. And I'm not saying that, that you've got to be on your toes and watch. But at the same time, if you want two wires, three wires, four wires, I don't really care. Whatever you're comfortable with, you have to go, the farmer has to build what he's comfortable with. The only thing that I'm concerned is it's a good enough fence that it's going to do a good job down the road. And I run into it with my daughter and son-in-law. They've got four wire. Um, and here's me. I'd just be putting one wire, but it's, 
it's there. It's what they want and what they like, so and what they're comfortable with. Anyways, I think that's the main concern as I see it. And who have been some of your biggest influences or mentors on why you grace the way you do? I think my one of my earliest influences was the Stock Farmer magazine by Ellen Nation. And I just really enjoyed reading that and seeing what other people are doing in other parts of the world. And, and I think I heard of his name in that paper was Jim Garrish. Now, Jim Garrish, I had an opportunity to hear a couple of his presentations. And I bought his book. It's called uh, Manage Intensive Grazing, uh, the Grassroots to uh, Grass Farming, I believe. Anyways, I've read that book, I don't know how many times, but he's the guy that kind of put it all together for me. And it made me start thinking, put it that way. So you've got some different thoughts. And then I think the next one was Don Campbell. I took the holistic course from Don and Bev in 2006, and they're just excellent educators. And plant grazing is just a good system. I don't know, there's been lots of mentors, and one that I really like. Dr. Fred Favenza. I had the opportunity to listen to him before, but just animal behavior and how it's affected by the biodiversity of plants on the range. I could listen to him forever, put it that way, but he's been influenced the way I think quite a bit. And just working through periphery, I was had the opportunity to work with some of the range biologists like May Elslinger and Kristen Pollock and Randy Polaroid, Jason Kosowin. And every one of them had an influence on me. As we'd be talking idea or grazing principles, but the main ones were probably uh, Jim Parrish and uh, Don Campbell's. Is there anything else about grazing, range management, or your role as a grazing mentor that you would like to share today? Well, I'm probably going to sound like a stuck record here a bit, but anyways, one of the things Jim Garrish said, to have tall plants, you have to graze tall. And I think what he meant is not only the plants are healthy, but they get established. And I, I mentioned that by doing McCartney earlier. And, and this has actually been the hardest thing for me is grazing tall. Like this year, I was trying to leave above the, the half that's recommended because it was, you know, I knew I didn't have any problem. I'd have lots of feet, but it's, it's a tough. And I have nothing wrong with, I graze real hard to the ground sometimes for if you have a reason. And we got to, you know, I don't say it again, change it up, but but it's that grazing tall that it's part of the time is really good. And I really believe in that. I've heard lots of guys say, well, it's a waste. Don Campbell says it's biological bank. Steve Cannon, he says it's next year's fertilizers. I believe in both. I think the other thing is that bare ground thing. If I go on the if somebody's range is completely covered and I don't see any bare ground. Maybe it's not totally healthy, but they're sure going in the right direction. Like just getting that ground covered is the main thing. I get stuck up on that changing it up, but it's it's just doing like we we're talking about different grazing uh, intensities of grazing, different rotations, going to the far end of your ranch and coming back. And I think the more we change it up, the less chance we have of doing hindrance to certain species. And we don't know the answers to most things, so we better not do the same thing. In other words, if you do the same thing in a row, you're probably making the same mistakes. And other than that, I can't think of anything. I'd just like to thank you for the opportunity to, to share some of my thoughts.
Well, that's perfect. Thank you so much. If listeners have questions about your grazing management or they want to get in contact with you about the mentorship program, how can they do that? Well, my phone number is 204-647-9271 or my email is mossron95 at gmail.com. Perfect. And I will add both your phone number and your email into the show notes for this episode so that if there are listeners who didn't catch that, they can go in there and get that from you. And I think that's it. Thank you so much for being able to do this with me today. No problem. A learning experience. (laughs) We wanted to let listeners know that this episode was prepared and recorded in January of 2023, as I'm taking a short leave from MBFI. Because of this, some of the conversations may seem like they are relating to past information or slightly out of context with the current time. We will resume regular recordings in the summer of 2023. Thank you for your patience. The research programs and daily operations at MBFI would not be possible without funding from the province of Manitoba, Government of Canada, and Canadian Agricultural Partnership, as well as partnership with Manitoba Agriculture, Manitoba Beef Producers, Ducks Unlimited Canada, and the Manitoba Forage and Grassland Association. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Beef and Forage Roundup. For more information on the on-farm projects or upcoming extension events, please visit us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at mbbeefandforage. For full project reports and more information about MBFI, please visit our website, mbfi.ca. If you have feedback on the show, questions about content, are interested in becoming a project supporter, or want to submit a proposal for a research project topic, please email information at mbfi.ca. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe to ensure you don't miss an upcoming episode. We've got lots to share.